Good to be here with y'all this morning. Uh, before we start, I would like to ask all the veterans if you would rise. We want to give you a special re- recognition this morning. So if you served our country, you please stand this morning. Uh, let's give them a round of applause. You may be seated. I want to say on behalf of Powell's Chapel Baptist Church, thank you for your service. Uh, without your uh, sacrifice and your dedication to our country, we would not have the freedom uh, to be able to be here and, and preach and teach God's word. So I'm grateful for your service and your dedication uh, to this country. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in to God's word. As you heard, we have a lot to cover this morning, so I'll do my best to cover it all. Uh, in a timely manner. But let's pray and ask God to open our hearts to what he would have for us this morning. Um, Pray with me this morning. God, I am grateful for the men and women in this church that serve this country, but more importantly, serve you. And we know that it's uh, through your kindness to us and through these men and women, their dedication, that we are able to be here this morning to preach and teach and gather together as there's many brothers and sisters around the world uh, that come Uh, on the Lord's Day to meet and gather, uh, but they do not have the same freedoms that we have, and I'm grateful for the freedom to teach your word this morning. And now, God, I pray that you'd quiet our hearts, open our minds and our eyes to see, to hear, and respond to your word this morning. So lead us, guide us, you are the hope uh, that uh, brings us to Christ. Christ Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross that gives us life. And hope. Go with us, Holy Spirit. Um, open this word to us. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. And all of God's people said, Amen. We are here in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 uh, probably is, of all the Jesus stories, of all the parables, uh, these three are probably the most uh, known, and this one in particular is probably the most known out of all of them. It, it is said this about this particular uh, parable. This is the gospel within the gospel. So the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospel. That's the good news. And many of the commentators say this is the essence, or if you want to know the true good news, you can find it here in this passage. We looked last week at the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin. This morning, we'll look at the parable of the lost Sons, that's S-O-N-S, plural. Two sons are lost in this passage. This is what one commentator says about these three uh, stories. He says this, We pitied the lost sheep. We prized the lost coin. But we identify most closely with the lost sons. And so this morning I'd ask you as we look into God's Word that you would examine your heart and ask yourself this question, Who are you most like in this passage? This is the beauty of God's word. God's word to us is like a mirror. We hold God's word up so that we can see ourselves. But here's the deal with God's word. Here's the deal with any mirror. You cannot hide a blemish in a mirror. You can hide a blemish with makeup, but if you go to a mirror, you look at yourself in a mirror, you're going to get your exact reflection. And that's what God's word is going to do for us this morning. But here's the, the, the deal. You have to go to the mirror to get the reflection. And so I had to ask you this morning, 
go to the mirror of God's word and ask yourself, who are you like in this passage? The younger son or the older brother? The younger son or the older brother? There's two characters in this story, but it all hinges on the third character, God. See, here's the other part about God's word. Not only does God's word reveal stuff to, about us, but here's the deal. The mirror is God himself. And so when we come to God, what we see about God will reflect in us all of our blemishes. And so we're going to look at the character of God, and God's character is going to be showing us what it looks like to be lost without him. The three things that we'll, we'll see four things in God's character this morning. We'll see God's mercy, we'll see God's kindness, we'll see God's love, and we'll see God's forgiveness. If you're taking notes this morning, the four main points of the passage are this. The younger son's rebellion. That is verses 11 through 19. Next is the father's response. That's verse 20 through 24. We'll next see the older son's reaction. And lastly, we'll see the father's request. So we're going to look at all three characters in this story. I think they mislabeled it in the Bible. You know, those headings in the Bible are not put there by God. They were put there by man. So I could say that if it was God that put it there, I wouldn't say that. But I believe that, that the scholars got it wrong when they labeled this passage the parable of the prodigal son. Because what happens when we read the title, it takes all of our focus onto one son. But if you look at the passage and you look at the passage most clearly, it is going to reveal to us both sons, but most importantly, the older son. The, the real reason for this parable was to show the Pharisees that they were most like the older son. I'll get to that in a moment. Remember what the Pharisees were doing. Remember when they come to Jesus and Jesus begins to tell them this story. He says, he, they say of him, this is a man who receives sinners and eats with them. And now Jesus is going to come all the way to the climax of the story to, to pinpoint that statement in their hearts. And so he's going to point out two things in this passage. He's going to point out outward sin. And then at the end, he's going to point out inward sin. And he's going to say in the passage, both sins have the same consequences. How many of us look at outward sins and put condemnation on that person? But God's word says outward sins are just as heinous as inward sin. That would be called self-righteousness. And so who are you? Who am I in this passage? I'm going to walk through every verse from verse 11 through 32. Let's look first at the younger son's rebellion. And he, Jesus, this is verse 11, and he, Jesus, said... There's a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me all that is mine. He says, father, give me the shares of the portions that is coming to me. And he divided it between the two of them. 
So what the younger son comes and he says, this is his outright rebellion. This is what he says to the father. Hey, all that's mine, when you die, I want it now. And what, what the son is saying, one-third of all your property, that's going to come to me. Two-thirds of it goes to the older. One-third of it comes to me. Give it to me and give it to me now. He's basically saying to the father, I want nothing to do with you. I wish that you were dead because when you die, I get what comes to me. So I'm done with you. How often do we do that with God in our lives? We want the blessings rather than the blesser. What the younger son is saying to the father is, I don't want relationship. I want your stuff. And if we're honest, if we look at our hearts, we often do that with God. I want your blessing, but I don't really want to be in relationship with you to get the blessing. Here's the key part of this passage, in my opinion. It says, look what the Father's response is to that demand. Like in that day and age, if you went to your father and said you, were, you wish you were dead, you know what you deserved? A backhand to the face. That, that's really what would happen to you. That, like that level of disrespect to a father, you would get a backhand and be put in your place. But look at the response of the father. His mercy. Remember, I said we're going to look at God is the father in this story, if you were wondering already. Like, uh, who's the father represented? It's God. So uh, there's no mystery there. We see the mercy of God to this younger son. But it says this in verse 13 and verse 12. He divided his property between both of them. That's going to be important when we get to the end of the text. So in that moment, the younger son asks for the property that's coming to him. The dad divides it one-third to the younger, two-thirds to the older. So now he gets rid of all of his stuff to these two sons. And now it says this in verse 13. We see the ongoing rebellion. Here's the deal with this passage. Sin always is progressive. You see, the first sin was going and demanding something. Now look at the next part of the sin, how far down it takes him. It says this in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his, prop he squandered his property in reckless living. That term means this, when he gathered all that he had, he took all that the father gave him and liquidated it into cash. Because all that the father would have had for him would have been all of his property and all of his cattle and all of his sheep. And he took all that and went and sold it all and got all the money for that. And then look what it says he did. He hightailed it out of there. He goes to a far away country. Is that not what sin does to us? Remo removes us from community? Removes us from relationship. It's real hard to sin in the, in the midst of community and family, is it not? When all eyes are on you. So what do we want to do? We want to remove ourselves. We want to get 
far away from community, far away from accountability, so we can do what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it, where we want to do it. And that's what this young man does. And it's that he squandered all that he had in reckless living. Another way to say that word in the Greek would be worthless living. Like this dude, he went out and bought all the nice stuff. The nicest sandals. I might, They might have had Air Jordans. I would have worn them back in the day, no doubt. A, a, a Gucci robe. A, a Rolex bracelet. I mean, he went all out. And then it says this later on in the text. You read into the text, but it said this. Because of all of his money, he all had all these friends. He had an entourage. Is that not what money does to you? Until what happens when you have no money? Your real friends are seen when you were dirt poor. It said he squandered all that he had. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, it gets worse. It says now a severe famine happened in the land. So he has no money. Now there's a famine in the land. And he began to be what? This is what sin always does. It leads us needy and wanting more. That's why in the rooms of NA and AA, they say this. One drink is too, too many and a thousand's not enough. Because sin doesn't have an appetite that can be quenched. Let me say that again. Sin does not have an appetite that can be quenched. Like when you and I come to the table, and next Sunday when we come to the table, there will be a point that you and I will be full. There's no filling with sin. It's a bottomless pit. It says he was in need, in need, in need. And so then he, it says this in verse 16, or 15, excuse me. He went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields with the pigs. Now that verse is so important. Remember where he went. He went as far away from his people as possible. And where he went was to a, a, a place of Gentiles. Gentiles for them were the worst of the worst. They were not Jewish people. They were the worst of the worst. And so it says this in the text. He went out and hired himself to a Gentile. That's not what the Greek says. It says this. He went and tied himself to a Gentile. He went and like gave himself completely to this Gentile man. That would have been unheard of. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus went into Samaria, but everyone else would have gone around Samaria. Why? Because they hated those people. And this man was in such need to fulfill his appetite for sin that he was willing to hire himself out to someone that he would have had no relationship ever with. And then look what his occupation is. Feeding pigs. Now, I don't know if you know about Jews and pigs, but they don't go together. Like Jewish people are not into barbecue. Like that's not their game. They're not going to go have a pig picking. They stay away from them. Why? Because they're such an unclean animal 
and even to touch them would make a Jewish person unclean. If they're unclean, now they can no longer get into the presence of God. But this man hires himself out to a Gentile and then goes and is hanging out with pigs all day. It gets worse. Remember, I said sin always is progressive. It gets worse. He's in the field working with the pigs. And then he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. So now he's not just caring for the pigs. He's eating with the pigs. He's in face first as the pigs are eating. He's right there on all fours eating out of the trough with the pigs. And all of his buddies, it says in the last part of it, no one gave him anything. His friends ditched him. Like, man, you got us so far, you spent all your money, now we're out of here. So he had nothing. Now in your Bibles, circle the next word, but. And this has to be true for every one of us that run from God in a faraway country and we see how far our sin takes us. This has been my hope and my prayer for us these last couple weeks preparing for this message. But then it says, and he came to himself. Another way to say that is he came to his senses. God had done something to him as he's eating with the pigs and his eyes and heart become illuminated, not for this need to be fed, but his need for something more. That it came to himself. And he's reminded of who? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. There was something about the father and his interaction with his father, even though he didn't want anything to do with his father. His father must have been a kind man. He would not have wanted to go home to an unkind man. He would not have wanted to go to home to an unloving man. He would not have wanted to go home to a man that would have been withholding to him. There was something in that relationship that his father had towards him that when he came to his, his, his senses, he ran back to his heavenly loving father. You'll see that in the text. He says, I'll go and I'll rise and go to my father and I'll say to my father, this is what has to happen in all of us when we come to our senses, when it comes to sin. Two things must happen. And I'll say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. We must take ownership of our sin. And see that it is against God and other people. We see that so clearly in the text. He says, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. Now we're going to see the father's response to the son's rebellion. But we'll also see the father's response to the boy's repentance. That is what happens in this text. The boy has rebellion, but we see his repentance by turning and running back to the father. It says this, 
in verse 20, the father's response. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. Three things that we see this father's, or four things we see in this father's response. First is this. This is true in our response, in our rebellion, in our repentance towards God. The first thing that we see, God's response to our repentance is this. He is always looking for us. Why we, he was still a far way off. Which says to me, every day, that father had to go on his balcony and look over the horizons with some hope that the boy would return. Hoping and praying and pleading with God that his son who was lost would come home. But God always is looking for us. The next thing we say is this, we see is this, not only did he see him, but what? He felt compassion for him. I don't know if you've ever been wronged. And the next time you see the person that you've been wronged, how often do you have compassion first? Do you not want revenge? Restitution? But we see the father's response is to have pity and compassion for the boy. God, in his love for us, sees us. He feels compassion towards us. And then it says this in the text, and he ran towards him. You see, when God sees you and God has compassion on you, he doesn't wait for you to come. He runs towards you. Like that is an amazing part in this passage to me. That yes, he saw him from a distance. Yes, he felt compassion, but he wasn't willing to wait for the boy to get to him. He got off his roof and ran towards the son. One of the most disgraceful things in that culture that any man could do would be to run. Many commentators say this. That's what females would do. And so even in that moment, we can see that God, yes, he's got all these masculine qualities, but there is a feminine quality to the nature of God, his compassion and his love and his pursuit for us. And then look what it says next. He ran towards him, he embraced him, and he kissed him. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been around pigs, they don't smell good. And he wasn't like just around them. He was like sleeping with them. He was eating with them. He must have stank. And what the father does is not just run towards him. He doesn't then say, hey, go get a bath. Go get cleaned up before you come to me. He says to, to the boy, let me show you what my love looks like. I'm going to embrace you in all of your grimy muck. God is not waiting for you to go clean up. God will clean you up. He wants to embrace you in all of your sin. But how many of us believe we come to God and then we got to go get cleaned up before we can actually be with God? 
You see, the work is not what we're doing. The work is what God himself is doing. And he embraces and kisses the boy. And then it says this. And he said to his son, and then the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I have this picture in my head. This is not what the text says. But, but I see the, the father putting his middle, his, his, his index finger and putting it to the boy's mouth so he can't finish the rest of the sentence. Shh, 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 you don't have to finish. There's nothing else you need to say. Yes, you sinned against me, and yes, you sinned against heaven. It's all that you need to say. Because the rest of that sentence would have been a shaming statement onto the boy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Like, let me just be hired hand. And that is not what God is saying to us. God wants to embrace us as his child. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Those three things are symbols of God's response to us. The best robe would have been the father's robe. It wasn't some robe that was hanging in the closet. It was the father's robe. And that symbol is this, that God is going to clothe us with his best. You know how God clothed us? With Christ's righteousness. Like when you come to Christ, in all of your sin, in all of your muck, in all of your mire, God is not waiting for you to go shower up. He's going to take his son's righteousness and put it on to you. And therefore you're clean, not because you're clean on your skin, but because of the righteousness of Christ cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And then it says this, not only that, but he's going to put a ring on his finger. You know what that ring meant? It showed him that he now is still the son of the father. It's one thing to be clothed in God's righteousness. But there's another thing to have the ring of Christ on your finger as his son. You and I have the same exact relationship with God that Jesus does. Who is Jesus? The son of God. Who are we? The sons of God. All that is bestowed onto Christ, it says, Paul says this, has now been bestowed onto us. We have the same inheritance that Christ himself has because you are a son of, or a daughter of God because of your repentance and his embrace and his clothing you in Christ's righteousness. And then it says this, he put shoes onto his feet. Again, that is a symbol only slaves went without shoes. Heirs of the promise had shoes. It was again to show to the people, yes, he has the best of the best. He's my son, and I want to show you that by putting shoes onto his feet. And then it says this, we see God's joy or the Father's response when the lost come back. He says to that servant, bring me a fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and what? Celebrate. 
For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Who found him? The father found him. And let us begin to celebrate. And so now we see the father's response is to have joy for those who are lost and now are found who are dead and now are alive. Remember what we looked at last week. There is a there's a party in heaven for every sinner that comes to faith. Here's the beauty of heaven. It's a continuous party. With every moment of every day, someone is being that was lost is now being found. And the heaven is celebrating. Oh, but now to the older son's reaction. Look at the older son's reaction. Now the older son was in the fields. And he came and drew near to the house and he heard the music and he saw the dancing. He saw the party. He saw the rejoicing. He saw the neighbors gather for the celebration. He called to one of the servants and asked, what does this mean? What is going on here? And the servant said to him, your brother has, has come. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Remember, I said it's about two prodigal sons. You see, the rest of the text, we're going to see just how lost the older son was. Yes, he had outward obedience, outward compliance. But inwardly, he had a place of seething resentment. Now, how do we know that? Because we see the next response. It says, but when he heard all this, he was angry and refused to go. You see, righteousness or self-righteousness has everything to do with what you do. Not with what Christ has done for you. So you have this place of pride and arrogance. And in that pride and arrogance, he goes on to say, basically, I, I've done all this. I've done all this outward obedience, this outward compliance for you. But he's so angry, he refuses to come in. But again, look at the father's response. The father knows the older son is not coming in. The, oh, oh, the father understands there's something going on in the heart of the older son. It says that the father came to him. Which says to me, the father's looking out for the older son just the way he was looking out for the younger son. The father came out and entreated him, begging him, basically is what the text says. Please come in. Please join this party. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. And I never disobeyed your commands, and yet you never gave me a young calf that I might celebrate with my friends. Now go back up to the first part of the passage. That's a lot. Remember what the text says, that when the younger son asked for all the property, the father divided it between, what, the both of them. He freely gave all that he had to both sons. That is what God does for both the righteous and the unrighteous. 
the self-righteous. It's all yours. Do what you want with it. But in his self-righteousness, he doesn't partake in the joys and freedom that are offered to him. How true is that when we are in our self-righteousness? He says this, But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. Basically, he says, how dare you do this for him? He doesn't even address him as father. He says, hey, look, man, the same disrespect that the younger son had, the older son has. But look at the response again of the father. He says to him, son, now I don't know about you, but when Cedar disrespects me, I don't call him son, I call him boy. Hey, look, boy. But he's saying to him, he's getting on one knee and saying to him, hey, child of mine, is what he says. It's an it's a endearing term of compassion and kindness and grace, the same that he had for the younger son. He says to him, son, you are always with me. All that has been mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For your brother, not my son, but your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and now he's found. The, the, the request of the Father is to come and celebrate with me as we celebrate together. Now, here's the interesting part of this story. That's where it closes. Why would Jesus not wrap a bow on it and put a great ending or a closing remark, like tie this whole thing together? Because you've got to remember who he's talking to. He's addressing who? The Pharisees. And so basically what he's saying to the Pharisees is you decide how this story closes. Like, I'm giving you an invitation to come to me and to celebrate with me, but you've got to decide to do that. Now, here's the sad part of how the story closes for those Pharisees. Remember how it closes. Those Pharisees, from that moment on, after they got an invitation to come to the party, to be forgiven, to be set free, to be free from their self-righteousness, they hate Jesus. From the rest, you can read the rest of Luke's account, 16 on, is about their way. How do we get this man that invited us to be with him killed? That's their self-righteousness. And the way the story ends is that these men that he's talking to, these Pharisees, are going to go out of their way to kill Christ. And they do it. Basically on 30 pieces of silver. And you know who knows how it ends that way? Christ. And yet he still gave the same invitation. And so I'd say this to you and to me this morning. 
Who are you most like in this passage? And how will this story end for you? Will you be the younger son that comes to his senses and receives the compassion, the love, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God and join him in the party? Or will you be that self-righteous older brother, the Pharisee, that will continue in your self-righteousness and have nothing to do with God, and yet you think you have everything to do with God? You see, without the repentance of the younger son, without the repentance of the older son, the consequences to the sin are the same. Death without the presence of God. But here's the promise from this passage that the invitation is for all the same. That there's an invitation to come to the presence of God through Christ Jesus. Will you accept the invitation? Will you come to your senses? Will you return to God? And will you say, whether you're the older or the younger brother, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Those same words were uttered by King David when he sinned against Bathsheba. And remember what happened. It says that God's compassion and mercy fell on David with forgiveness. God is longing to forgive you and to invite you into his presence. Will you respond to that invitation? The invitation is for you if you're here this morning. God is longing for you. He is watching for you. He has compassion on you. He is running towards you. And He is ready to embrace you and clothe you with Christ's righteousness. Will you respond to the invitation this morning? Let us pray.